This is Art Keller, and you're listening to the Technoskeptic Podcast. My guest today is Professor David Krakauer, president of the Santa Fe Institute, which is dedicated to the multidisciplinary study of the fundamental principles of complex adaptive systems. And we're talking today via Skype, at least we're attempting to. Professor David Krakauer, welcome to the Technoskeptic Podcast. Thanks for having me on. So let me just uh, explain to the listeners kind of how we got here. Uh, one of the pieces that we ran recently in the Technoskeptic uh, discussed problems with over-reliance on GPS systems. And just coincidentally, one or two days later, perhaps serendipitously, I was listening to Sam Harris's Waking Up podcast, and you were a guest. And uh, I really found that the the concepts that you were exploring did a great job of expanding on what I was just touching a little bit on. Specifically, you were talking about kind of ways to think about technology and, and cognitive aids and whether they're broadly helpful or maybe not so much. Uh, and, and the concepts specifically were... Complementary and competitive cognitive artifacts, if I have the, the terms right. So just wondering if you could explain a little bit about those, and then perhaps we can talk more broadly about how we can use those to look at, uh, at, at technology on an ongoing basis. Yeah, and so the, the context for my analysis of artifacts really comes from an interest in the evolution of intelligence and stupidity on Earth. Uh, so, <laughs> and yes, and people laugh when I say I study stupidity, but... They, oh, well, it's worth, it's worth studying, sir. <laughs> you could argue that it's probably the most important challenge facing our species and that um, there's so much talk about intelligence and artificial intelligence and not anything like enough work on stupidity and artificial stupidity, which is another discussion. So that's where it comes from. If you look across all species on the planet Earth and ask what is it that makes any given species unique or different or interesting to us, the overwhelming fact of the human species is its adoption and dependence upon technologies. In every biological sense that we can analyze and measure, humans are really not very special. In other words, when you look at the genome, we're basically chimpanzees. When you look at the brains, we're basically like other primates. It's very difficult to find anything exceptional about the human lineage uh, from the evolutionary perspective. And yet, here we are talking over Skype about cognitive artifacts. And so that is the motivating reason for having an interest in artifacts, because I believe they're really one of the only things that that makes our lineage um, somewhat special with respect to its evolutionary past and its evolutionary future. Now, if you go back long enough, you reach a point where humans really didn't stand out as culturally significant, and you don't have to go very far. Um, really, you just go to the Upper Paleolithic about 100,000 years ago, and if you were an advanced extraterrestrial civilization visiting the Earth and asked to send a report back to Betelgeuse on which species fascinated you, humans probably wouldn't even figure. Um, <laughs> but then you come back, you know, 100,000 years later, and you say, well, in fact, there is this one species that seems to be taking over the entire planet and destroying it, <laughs> and, um, and it's 
doing this by virtue of its relationship with a certain class of object that it builds that allows it to manipulate physical matter and information in somewhat historically, evolutionarily unprecedented ways. And so then if you ask about that physical matter, those artifacts, broadly, I claim, you can, at least with the ones that amplify reason, there are many Mm -hmm. that amplify our ability to manipulate the world physically. Um, Think about knives and forks or levers. I'm not talking about those kinds of objects, extraordinarily important, but the kind that, that have a direct impact on how we reason, that is, that pertain to cognitive dimensions of existence, memory, um, information processing, um, prediction, and so forth. And there, broadly speaking, you can see artifacts that amplify our cognitive abilities when we possess them. And so, for your listeners, an obvious contemporary example would be a calculator. Mm-hmm. You can perform extraordinary sums that only someone like Ramanujan could have performed in his head in the past in the presence of a calculator. But when I take the calculator away from you, unfortunately, you're restored to your modest arithmetical capabilities. Uh, that's one kind of artifact, and um, I call those competitive because... In a sense, they're competitive with our ability to reason inferentially. They compete and outcompete us. So calculators are better at arithmetic. They're not better at calculus. Now, uh, there's another kind of artifact, and here it gets to your interest in GPS, which is a map. And a map is very intriguing because just like the calculator, when you possess it, you're able to more effectively navigate through space. But unlike the calculator... When you take the map away, you preserve a trace of its information in your brain such that you can still navigate better now than you did before. And so these are amplifiers, like calculators, but they also do something else. And that is they contribute to, if you like, coaching the brain into forming more effective representations of the world in which it lives. And I call those complementary cognitive artifacts. Right. As time goes on and as technology accumulates, the best way to try and figure out if they fit into category A, complementary cognitive artifacts, which are fundamentally expand human capabilities, or B, the competitive cognitive artifacts, which replace them, that may even limit our own mental development, that that science is the best way to evaluate, you know, how does a new technology fit into this landscape? The only problem being that science is a very slow, iterative process that can take, you know, decades to come to a firm conclusion on something. But technology is expanding very rapidly. So our our best tool for evaluating whether a particular technology is a good idea is something that doesn't operate in that same time frame. Do you, do you have any concerns about that? Because that's one of, you know, the concerns of, uh, of the techno-skeptic. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of depends what one means by concern. Um, I agree with you that the technological world changes so fast, that landscape, and that's partly what is so alluring about it but it means that it's an ever-moving target with respect to evaluating its impact on the evolution of our own lineage. On the other hand, as I just pointed out, 
as long as we can be certain that the artifacts remain available, they remain amplifiers. And I think the deeper philosophical challenge or ethical or existential question is, do we care if we are in some sense reduced cognitively in the absence of the artifact, if we are amplified in its presence? You know, and this is a quite an interesting point. Uh, you know, the old debate, think about it, about wearing uh, optical glasses. As I have been doing since the age of six, I have horrible eyesight, so that's one I relate to very well. Right, so that's a perfect example of something that, in the absence of the lens, you would be, to some extent, incapacitated, and so you willingly use it. But at the same time, we know that by supplementing vision with a lens, there is some evidence to suggest that our vision goes through attrition slightly more quickly than it would if we were forced to suffer through short-sightedness, for example. And so that's a good example where I think society has decided through some kind of informal cost-benefit analysis that the benefits of wearing glasses outweigh the possible costs of an accelerated loss of vision. And I think that's the kind of metaphor that one should have in mind with respect to all technologies. Everything is a cost-benefit analysis. There is no unconditional good. There might be a few things that are unconditionally bad. And so we as a society, and I guess that's what your podcast is established to achieve, have to have a debate around any given artifact. That, to me, is one of the concerns of technology. When we embed something in a culture and we've accepted it, the whole debate over, to some degree, climate change is one in which we're having trouble making a correct cost-benefit analysis, as you said, all the technologies that contribute to global warming on one hand, and whether we want really extreme, essentially, weather and, and climatic conditions on the other hand, and the, the direct effects of those. It does seem to be a challenge of, by the time we have something really embedded in a culture, it can be very hard if we then decide, you know, we should really address that to to root out an, an old idea and replace it with a new, a better idea. Um, is looking at the speed of, of perpetuation of ideas something that you look at as you study complexity? Yeah, we do. I mean, so yes, I mean, at the Santa Fe Institute, we do a lot of work on the diffusion of ideas there is very well known, in fact, known since the 1920s that the rate at which you lose a trait is much slower than the rate at which it can be acquired. And so there, there's in the mathematics a fundamental asymmetry uh, in, in a field called neutral theory, where in that, in that case one is studying the rate at which a gene introgresses into a population, that is, fixes in a population, and then the time it takes for that gene to be lost if it's no longer contributing function. So these are all areas... Um, in which we work. And at one point I'd like to make, which I think is very important, a source of frustration, is that people often forget the complexity of the cost-benefit analysis. And, you know, climate change is, is a perfect example. Mm -hmm. If I'm discussing climate change with a governor of a state, and their fundamental cost-benefit equation is based on employment and economics, and I'm debating it from the cost-benefit perspective of theories that are better or worse at accounting for the observed measurements. We will never reach a satisfactory solution to either of us because we're operating under a fundamentally different mental model. And I, I suspect that a large part of the problem in communicating to people 
is because one hasn't really understood the currencies that they're using to make decisions. And so I think it's, it behooves us to sit down and think very carefully about why our arguments are failing. And it gets to your point about why they're not diffusing. If I sit down with a climate change sceptic, they're typically sceptical because of the economic loss of revenue. You realise, let's have a conversation then about the economy. It doesn't help just to constantly hammer on the geochemical facts, because the geochemical facts are not salient if the mathematical model you have in your head is an economic one. So that gets to this whole area that SFI works in, which is complex systems, which is understanding that decision makers are typically juggling tens, if not hundreds, of competing variables. And when you're having a conversation with someone, it is your job, if you're trying to convince someone of something, to identify the, the variables that are salient to them. The program continues right after this. Thanks for listening to the Technoskeptic Podcast. If you like what you hear, please share or subscribe at technoskeptic.substack.com. We've got a lot of great content looking at the impact of technology on society. We cover a wide range of issues like privacy, economics, cognition, synthetic biology, artificial intelligence, and a whole lot more. If you have comments or want to contribute an article to the Technoskeptic, email us at technoskeptic at substack.com. And now, back to the show. I don't know if there's a fundamental desire for people to avoid uncertainty. It just seems to work out that way. But even really simple ideas that shouldn't be that hard to perpetuate can spread extremely slowly. One of my favorite examples of this is it took about 200 years from the time they first discovered that citrus fruit could help prevent scurvy before it was fully accepted on all the ships of the British Navy. That is a, a struggle with technology, um, is, is how do we identify the bad ideas so we can root them out? Mm-hmm. It, yes, it's, very, it's, it's, it's a whole very complex area. The historian of science, Gunter Stench, wrote extensively on what he called the problem of prematurity, and that is through ideas that appear before their time. And notice, before their time doesn't mean that are right or wrong, And uh, it gets to your point that there are many ideas that were correct and that were not adopted. Uh, Other ideas that came along that were wrong and were. And typically there's almost sort of a chemistry of this, like a covalent bond. Typically these ideas will spread when they can engage with a set of other ideas that are complementary to them. And so it's one of the reasons why radical innovative ideas take a long time to fix is precisely because they are so radical that they don't have existing, pre-existing complementary theories that they can plug into easily. And so it shouldn't surprise us, actually, that radical ideas um, are harder to introduce than conservative ideas. I'm not sure if you're familiar with a guy called uh, Mark Goodman. Uh, He wrote a book called Future Crimes and and, uh, He was looking at the opposite. We are not great at dealing with problems that accumulate faster than a linear progression. When it gets to exponential, we have a really hard time how something can get really bad really fast. And so we don't necessarily uh, react in the kind of time scale 
that we need to react to. And, and so his concerns were, were not just artificial intelligence, but what happens when artificial intelligence meets, um, you know, 3D printing, meets uh, synthetic chemistry and biology, and that it can introduce technological changes so fast it'll be really hard to, to make even any intelligent decisions about them. Personally, having served in both uh, the military and the Central Intelligence Agency, the debate about military service or the way the world of uh, intelligence collection works is really poor. And I think that's just a lack of direct experience and thoughtful debate. And I just wonder if that same limitation is going to kind of hit us more and more. Does complexity theory that you're working on have any way to address not just a slow spread of ideas, but how we get ideas or understanding of key concepts to the people who need to understand them so they can make intelligent decisions for us? There are at the moment, there's an interesting bifurcation taking place in how we reason about the world. And it touches on your opening question. On the one hand, machine learning algorithms are essentially statistical inferential algorithms that find regularities have become so effective that they have in many cases supplanted the more traditional scientific desire to understand things. So let me make this concrete, and that is the world of chess and Go computers. Mm -hmm. um, it was the reason why computer scientists were fascinated by chess uh, and not by, say, tic-tac-toe was because it was assumed to be such a demanding problem that if we could make a machine that could beat a human, we would have understood how humans think about chess and, by extension, how humans think. Indeed. And when that failed, because we realized there were shortcuts that played to the enumerative excellence of algorithms, we moved on to Go. And the argument with Go was enumerating game trees, even with efficient pruning algorithms, would be insufficient to produce excellent players. And hence, what was thought to be true of chess, erroneously, is true of Go. But as we learned in the last year, that isn't true either. So on the one hand, we have this realization that certain classes of very simple statistical classifier that lie behind Deep Go and Deep Blue do incredibly well in complex problems and save us the effort <laughs> of having to create something that would be cognitively analogous to relativity or general relativity or quantum mechanics or the theory of evolution and so on. Uh, Theoretical frameworks, which in some cases are very powerful but extremely difficult to understand, but have the virtue of giving us a fundamental insight into the way that nature works. And at the moment, science and research is experiencing this strong tension between these two approaches. One that is proven to be of extraordinary utility, machine learning, but with very limited insight into the underlying mechanics of the world. And the other approach, which would be, you know, you'd associate with Maxwell and Darwin and Niels Bohr and so forth, which gives you fundamental understandings of the nature of physical reality, but which is much harder to deploy and in many cases much less predictive. And so we are at that moment uh, where we're sort of making a decision and it's not clear where we're, we're going to go. I mean, it would be a longer discussion for us 
to reach a conclusion as to which of these two is preferable and what the dangers of pursuing only one or, or another are. But I, I think that science is experiencing precisely this dilemma now um, in terms of forfeiting basic understanding. And then the world in which you have lived, uh, whether it's the military or the economy, or it doesn't really matter, which are vastly complex, where we have never had an Einstein or a, or a Schrodinger, but where we now do have Google and Facebook, which seem to be reasonably good at predicting trends, it seems that the argument has already been won by the machine learning algorithm because there is no comparable first principles mechanical theory that is a rival to it. And so this is where we're all struggling now. Can there be a fundamental theory of society, for example, or of the economy to be a little bit more narrow, which is nevertheless still grand, which will do as well at predicting trends, individual preferences, social networks, patterns of spending, absolute upper bids in auctions, etc., as machine learning algorithms. And if we don't build such a theory, we'll have no choice but to adopt unconditionally, driven by our insatiable appetite for prediction, uh, the machine learning solutions. And, and the consequences of that, as you say, are completely unknown. Yeah, it is, it is troubling over a long term. And, you know, I, I definitely include myself in the subset of, of humans who probably, you know, all of the things being equal, we tend to adopt the solution that seems easiest and fastest. And, and that is the challenge of remaining skeptical of not just technology, but yes, technology, but, but all other ideas uh, in evaluating them because, Again, it's so much easier to look at something, see the short-term benefits and say, okay, that'll do the trick and, and not do the long-term evaluation. Um, I would add, you know, even, again, to get to your question about, say, for example, policymakers, politicians, generals, they are basically throwing a die. Right. They, they still have enough input to ensure that the problem still has a rather limited number of solutions, hopefully. But they're still throwing a die. And I think that the question is whether that's acceptable. And I suspect it won't be considered uh, acceptable. And they will outsource their authority to machines. If you're dealing with a very high-dimensional space, at some point it, that's sufficiently well-defined with that caveat, then machines will ultimately outperform humans. Real complexity theory, by the way, allows us to make reasoned decisions. Well, in, in a way that, that circles us back to the competitive cognitive artifacts, um, which was the starting point in, in the case of GPS. And for readers who are interested, there is a new book out there on GPS called Pinpoint, I believe, which looks at some of the problems. And one of the issues that uh, the author discusses is uh, cognitive scientists are starting to realize that that issue of whether you can, um, as you discussed, use a map well or kind of outsource that to GPS, that those functions that manage movement through the physical universe may carry with them a bunch of other cognitive benefits, and that if we just kind of outsource that permanently, we don't know what other cognitive abilities we're giving away with that. Uh, if you get dependent on that, you know, what does it do in your long-term ability to reason? Uh, not just in the absence of computers, but even using the computers, are you allowing your your ability to reason to atrophy in general? Yeah, I mean, that's right. And I, I'm not sure I believe in that single unitary monolithic concept of reason. 
I, I tend to think right, it's a little right, bit yeah. more modular, but I think it is true that it's not just that things will atrophy, it's that there will be ideas that we'll never have mm-hmm. because we don't have, if you like, the access to the mental model whose adjacency is the new discovery. Right. I would consider the real threat much less that we're all going to become, you know, these dopey, you know, soporific stoners who can't reason through critical ideas. I'm concerned about discovery because there is no machine learning algorithm that exists or will exist for a little while that makes genuinely new discoveries. So maybe that's the greater concern, uh, the world where we essentially come to a stop because we've given up all of the basic mental toolkit necessary to build new theories. Yeah, and are people evaluating things with the primary goal of trying to evaluate, well, does this help or hurt human creativity in the long term, which is completely different of, is it a short-term economic benefit? The issue of creativity is one that economists are starting to worry about in the U.S., and they haven't been able to pin it down, but they have noticed that the rate of formation of new businesses is down considerably. Obviously, since that's the economic engine that drives an economy, if that goes down over one or two years, not a big problem. But if it goes down systemically, you've got a big problem. It's also one that lands in your field of complexity where there may be so many things to contribute to it. It's hard to tease out what may be doing that and thus you know, be prescriptive about solutions. Yeah, you know, I think a a good example of a characteristic that we tend to be perhaps a little too dismissive of is memory. And so uh, many people will say, well, I can always look that up. Memory is different from problem solving. And it's just a total fallacy. Mm -hmm. Holding memories in your mind allows you to manipulate them uh, in order to generate new concepts having your memories completely outsourced such that you don't remember anything, you have to look everything up, doesn't essentially give you all of the elements of your toolkit to be problem-solving. And so that's a very good example. You know, in in my job, I'm very fortunate. I meet a lot of Nobel laureates and a lot of extraordinarily good scientists and thinkers in fields outside of the natural sciences. And the key characteristic, it's very interesting, of most of the very gifted people I know is have extraordinary memories. I think this is one of those things that has been, and it's a bit of a tragedy, sort of dismissed by the educational system. So you'll read a lot about, you go back and you look at interviews with T.S. Eliot or pick your favorite poet. They are very capable of, you know, reciting from memory, you know, whole swathes of classic texts. And if you ask them why was it so important to them, it's because it gave them an internal raw material for recombination and exploration, which is quite different from always having to recollect simply by reading from the page. And and I think that's one of the things that I do worry about losing, the art of memory. I would agree with that. I've run across something. I listened to another podcast, which is actually has quite a bit of science in it, and you would not expect it, but it's it's done in cooperation with a stand-up comedian, Brian Callen, and then his co-host is a Harvard-trained biologist and uh, an autodidact to an unbelievable degree. And so what they've managed to do over almost 200 episodes is get in some of really the leading uh, scientific thinkers of the modern era. A lot of the people there were running up against problems in that people's knowledge in their own specialty was so narrow and so deep that 
they weren't aware of other things that were extremely relevant that fell outside their academic discipline. And it was the limiting factor of making progress because they didn't understand other people's work or just didn't have a knowledge of other academic fields that were adjacent uh, and could have been really helpful. Um, but that's an example. We don't typically think about institutions and organizations as artifacts, but we should. And if you think about a university, you can ask, is it a complementary or competitive cognitive artifact? And exactly what you're describing is one of the reasons why SFI was created, because we felt that many of the structures that have been imposed on thinking minds in the standard model has become competitive because you're, on the one hand, if you think about it, it's a bit like a calculator, right? Because you're in the presence of people who can answer your questions. In that context, you have access to this knowledge that you could deploy. But at the same time, the pedagogical structures that exist, as you say, the silos or the boundaries or the lack of information flow is actually becoming competitive. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, is not necessarily enabling you to reason through a problem in all the dimensions that it would like. In other words, having departments, physics, chemistry, biology, and so forth, on the one hand looks great because it looks you've got all of the ground covered. But if you look more carefully, the mobility of the individual within that space is highly restricted. And so you are actually having access, depth access, to only a very limited number of fields. So you can, I think, extend these kinds of concepts all the way up to institutions if you're starting to think about not the design of machines and artifacts like phones and calculators, but the design of organizations that are supposed to be facilitating the the acquisition of knowledge. And so I I think you're absolutely right. Uh, And again, it's one of the reasons why SFI has the structure it has. Yes, exactly. And that's work that that desperately needs to be done uh, to to get people to examine our institutional infrastructure and ask, is this doing what we hoped or thought it was designed to do? Can you tell me, um, just if if readers are interested, where they can learn more about the Santa Fe Institute uh, and how they can support your work? Well, they we can you can find us at uh, www.santafe.edu. But I think most importantly is stay curious, don't avoid difficult problems, and don't avoid civilized conversation. Indeed. Seems like uh, rules to live by. Yeah. Well, thank you again for your time. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with the Technoskeptics. Thank you so much. And Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. One last thing before we go. I'd like to ask listeners to please go to whatever podcast app you use and put a review there for the Technoskeptic Magazine podcast. When the Technoskeptic switched from WordPress to Substack, our podcast feed also changed so all our previous reviews went away. We'd really appreciate it if you help us catch back up to where we were and leave us a nice review. Thanks.